Here's to the paper pushers, the rush hour warriors, and the gotta get awayers. Trade the daily grind for a place to unwind, where you can rise with the tide and roll down the boardwalk, where you can eat french fries for lunch and ice cream for dinner, where your only commute is your walk to the beach, where every day feels like Saturday. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. Oh, wow, I have a really good With Friends Like These. One of the most surprising and exciting things about my life today something I could not have predicted or expected is that I am friends. I have friends like these. I have two friends, not one, but two friends who are professional sled dog racers. One of them is Maria, and I know she listens to the show. So hi, Maria. I promise to come up and visit you soon. And the other you might know as well. Her name is Blair Braverman. She is the first Jewish woman to compete in the Arctic sled race, the Iditarod. And she is the co-proprietor with her husband of Braver Mountain Mushing. She has a legion of fans online who call themselves the Ugly Dogs. And she's known for her Twitter threads featuring the actual dogs, not the fans. These threads usually have some kind of unexpected profundity to them, in addition to just loads of pictures of cute dogs. These profundities usually have something to do with teamwork, or kindness, or hope. They are a very, very cool, no pun intended, version of those motivational posters you may have seen in an office somewhere, but these threads won't make you want to poke your eyes out. I talked to her last weekend in Madison at the Capital Times Idea Fest, and here it is. I am here with Blair Braverman. She is the author of Welcome to the Goddamn Ice Cube, correspondent for Outside Magazine, a long-distance dog sledder who just completed her rookie Iditarod. (laughs) And she lives in Mountain, Wisconsin, (laughs) with her husband and 26 dogs. That's right. I was just telling Anna backstage, because she asked how many dogs I have, that the way to ask a musher how many dogs they have, you can never ask that. You'll never get a straight answer. And you have to say, how many dogs are you feeding? <laughs> because if someone asks how many dogs you have, like mushers will be like, well, like, I have like nine dogs on my team. And then I have like these retirees. And then, but there's two puppies, but like one of the puppies I'm raising for my friend. And then there's three foster dogs who are staying here until they find like forever homes. And like, you just divide it all up because you're thinking of them all as individuals. And the only way to get a number, which is all people ever want, is to say, how many dogs are you feeding? And so it's 26. That's a lot of dogs. It is. That's how many dogs we're feeding. Yeah. And I could just start with, like, tell me more about each individual dog, but... Um, <laughs> How long does the audience have? <laughs> but we'll move along. We'll move along a little bit. You know, I asked the audience if there were any ugly dogs in the house, and um, 
ugly dogs sounds like it might be an insult. It does. But it's not. Do you want to explain what ugly dogs are? Sure. Yeah. People think I'm talking about my dogs, but I do share stories about the dogs on Twitter. That's where most people have heard of them. And a few years ago, a Twitter troll um, got very offended about something, a perceived slight I'd said toward Taylor Swift, which I hadn't. I actually really like Taylor Swift, but I, I, it was a perceived insult. And, uh, and, and she wrote to me, go back to your ugly dogs, Karen. And, uh, which I thought is a beautiful sentence. Like it sounds it like is. the it's title weirdly, of a Raymond Carver like, story. Poetic. Yeah. Go back to your ugly dogs, Karen. And I love it. And, um, we had like a, a follower of the team who said we should have a name and we should be the, the ugly dogs. And so now that's who, you, your, who we always go back to. So now that's the people that are your, see, I want to be careful here because I almost said they're people who are your supporters. And in a literal sense, they are. There are people who support you via Patreon. Yeah, we do have sponsors. Right. So those but you pe- don't have to sponsor to be an ugly dog. You don't have to sponsor it's to be an ugly dog. in your heart if you're an ugly dog. <laughs> you, so and I, you will know <laughs> if you're an ugly dog or not. You know in your heart if you're an ugly dog. Anyone can be an ugly dog. I just got an email yesterday, which I haven't responded to. So if it's one of the people in this room, like I, I'm sorry, I'm not blowing you off. Um, but I just got an email and it was like, how do I officially become Aww. an ugly dog? Like, what do I need to do? And I was like, I, there's no entrance fee. Like, <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to, like, pass a test. It's not a club. Yeah, it's not. It's, if it makes you happy you can be to an think ugly of dog. yourself like that, then you absolutely can. And if you think it's, like, insulting or bad, like, you don't have, like, it just, it, it's it, what, what brings you joy, then you can choose whatever you want. I think that's one of the reasons why I shied away. I caught myself before saying that they're your supporters because it's a, a lot more inclusive than that. The ugly dog community is a community. And that's one of the reasons I, I think sort of the overarching reason I was interested in talking to you today was the creation of this affirming, positive, inclusive community. Now it happens to be around dog sledding. It does. And it's really, I mean, it's, it's an amazing internet community. It yeah. has changed our lives. And people, like, help each other. Like, if someone falls on hard times, I've seen the community come together and help each other. And it's, we're sort of like, wow, like, how did all these good people, like, find this dog team? I mean, so as a, another animal person, do you, like, consider yourself an animal person? Or do you think that's, like, a dumb distinction? I've never thought about it. <laughs> I don't, know. I don't know what that question means. Yeah, I mean, yeah I mean, some, I'm like with animals all day long. Right. Like I was thinking to myself, like that probably makes no sense to her. It's like, do you go outdoors? Are you an outdoors person? Right. Like you're just a, you just are outdoors. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, and I think it's a weird distinction because then people feel like they're not and they feel like they can't. Yes. And that's an interesting way of sort of def- defining or describing the ways in which the community of ugly dogs is so inclusive. There is no membership. There is no distinction. There is just being, right? I mean, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't like a conscious thing that we planned, but there, I I mean, to to give people who are unfamiliar with it a sense of what this community is, it's a community that formed around our dog team. And then for instance, while I was running the Iditarod, I started coming into these villages and people started hugging me. And it turned out that the ugly dogs had, without 
central leadership, what a weird way to say that, but like spontaneously started fundraising for these villages, for schools in these villages, and in the course of this race, raised $100,000 for schools in, um, schools in these small in remote Alaskan, Alaskan villages, villages that this race went through. That I'm guessing probably don't have a lot of funds to do stuff normally. No, they're very um, struggling financially a lot, these, these towns. Yeah, I think, and so there's, there's an interesting point in the end of your book where you talk about how you are living in Wisconsin with your fiance and you got a dog sled team from someone who was retiring, I think. Yes. I did, yeah, from a musher named Andrew Letzring. And uh, you're teaching kids, you know, neighbors how to do it. You're taking cue on on dog sledding trips and teaching him. And then you realize, oh, wow, I'm, I'm a dog sledder. Yeah, you know, because I always, I mean, dog sledding is interesting because there's no... I mean, actually, I did go to school for dog sledding, <laughs> but like there is no but there's no for dog license. Sledding. Like, there's not a licensing process. Yeah, it's not like you know, there's not a system. There's not like an agency that oversees it. Um, like people become mushers by, and so people think it's this very cohesive sport, and it is so far from cohesive. I mean, it's it's like assuming that like everyone who writes poetry is cohesive, like <laughs> because it's largely self-taught, right? And mushers tend have to be careful how I say this, but like, we like to be in the wilderness with dogs. We don't necessarily love other people. <laughs> like, there's a reason that we choose to be in the wilderness with dogs. So people are like, you know, very solitary by necessity. Like, we have to live in rural areas. And some people like apprentice with other mushers, um, you know, which is called being a handler. And actually, um, Sarah Marshall right here in the front row is one of our handlers. She's, she's been on trips with us. Um, and helped out with the dogs a lot. And so I was a handler for years. And I was always, it is a sport that has a lot of gender equality because men and women compete together at the elite levels. There's no men's division and women's division. Right. But the most common thing you see are men with female handlers where like the man is the racer and sort of women are helping to put him there. I, I wonder mean, how that happened. <laughs> Um, or certainly, like, if you see couples, like, like the man straight couples, the, yeah. usually the man is the racer and, and the woman is the handler. Um, so even just that, like, I remember when we started rolling up to races and my husband was my handler, like, you know, officials would come and, like, hand him the race bibs when we were standing by the sled before the race and then sort of, like, be taken aback when we were like, no, she's, mm -hmm. she's the one racing. Although now he's racing more, which I'm very excited about. Um, I'm trying but to figure out how we got to this. We did, I remember. Okay. We were talking about, like, um, realizing that I was a musher. Yeah. I always felt like it was a sport that was sort of gate-kept by these men I worked for. Mm -hmm. And at some point, I realized when I had my own dogs, like, this is... I don't... Like, none of these men are going to come and be like, oh, you're a musher now. Like, you, you, you are as much of a musher as me. It was just a matter of doing it. There was no gatekeeper. It... Like just I, calling yourself. It, yeah, it like just, I just it, had to live the life and I was a musher and that was valid. There was no one who was going to like tap me with a magic wand and, and tell me I'd made it. And the reason why I want to make this you know connection between that and just being an ugly dog is I've been trying to figure out like what is it about creating community around 
dog sledding that made it so affirming and welcoming and positive because I don't know if you're following the news, <laughs> but there's a certain lack of that. I've noticed. Yeah. Yeah. I've, ma- I've been made aware. Yeah. So I'm sorry to break it to you if you didn't know, but things suck. Yeah. Um, yes. Oh, I'm aware. <laughs> and there is a yeah. toxicity to our popular culture, I would say. Um, and to a lot of interpersonal interactions that happen, especially online. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is a sense of division that runs through um, a lot of uh, our discussions about, I mean, not just about politics, but about culture as well. And so while I don't buy into the idea that online communities or online communication is necessarily more negative or more distancing than in IRL, communication like I've found a lot of positivity online too it's just so fascinating to me that this incredibly positive community came out of it and I'm like well is it is it the dogs is it the dogs that did it or is there something else I don't know if I should say this well Um, then you definitely need to say it (laughs) but my husband and I we train a team of dogs right like we Yes, that part okay, we knew. Yeah, so we that's train not a the, team of that's, dogs. And if you, that's the part you train them all at once. You're, you're you train them all at once. You don't get to work with them one-on-one. So you're training a community with your dogs. And we have very explicitly been like, how can we use the skills we use to train a team of dogs to train an online community? Does it involve kibble? It does not involve kibble. Kibble. What it does, Meter I feel like this sounds like I'm being like dismissive, but I actually I think like, if people know how it's much it's behaviorism, you, it's yeah. basic behaviorism, right. which is that you reward things you want to see and you ignore things you don't want to see. And that's what we do with our dogs. And that's also what we try to do online. So if we see someone starting drama, we just don't go near it. We don't engage. And if we see people like being kind to each other and making art and, you know, being the kind of person that we want to be in a community with, which is so much of it, like then we engage with that. But we're very conscious to not engage with things that that makes that we don't want there to be more of. Because the more, you know, if someone says something negative and, and we respond, um, which is tricky because sometimes you want to, but it does reinforce that. It does mean there's going to be more of that. And Or you respond um, like... Uh, out of public eye, perhaps. Yeah, like you yeah do. we definitely, like, you know, sometimes there's hiccups and we'll talk to people privately or, you know, friends if we're working something out. And But, um, but yeah, we think very much in terms of behaviorism where I don't think it's that's the same thing as dogs. Like, you really just, you pay attention to the things you like and you ignore the things you don't and it becomes sort of self-reinforcing. I am so tempted to just talk about my dog now, but... Go ahead. Uh, no, well, I, we so I have um, a rescue dog, Exley, who has turned out to be anxious and reactive. And it's one of those things, like, I keep on thinking it's my fault that, like, this dog doesn't do the things that I want it to do. Mm-hmm. Like, just be friendly and be a dog dog, as I used to, as I used to think of it. Like, why can't he just be a dog dog? <laughs> um and so we've been working with a trainer, and the trainer is a lot of the same advice. And also, he also keeps saying, first of all, some dogs are just nervous and 
mm-hmm. you know, like have certain behavioral patterns like people, like, you know, some people are nervous and need some, some special attention sometimes. Um, but he also said, you have to understand that everything he wants to do for you, he's, it's coming from a place of like, he thinks you want this. Mm. He thinks you want him to do this. And so you have to let him know by paying attention and rewarding the stuff that he's doing that's good and let him know like when he's doing stuff, for one thing, it's coming from a place of trying to please you. And another thing that it's, you just don't, just don't have him, don't give him the attention he's asking for. Be a, be a good mom dog. Well, and every dog wants a job. Yes. Every dog wants a job. And they'll give themselves so, a job if you don't give it exactly. to them. Exactly. Yes. So, you know, our sled dogs run and that's their job. If a sled dog can't run, you need to give it another job so that it feels fulfilled. Um, right. And it's the same with pets. I mean, they can decide their job is to defend you or to bark at the neighbor and they like, it's a duty to them. Right. And I guess, I mean, I was sort of thinking about this in terms of the ugly dog community, which is that I think that the generosity of spirit that you give to animals, it's Mm -hmm. it's sometimes easier for us to be generous of spirit to animals than it is for us to be generous of spirit to people. Yeah, absolutely. But that seems to be the thing that's happening in the community that you've helped create. I hope so. I hope so. And then as it grows and changes, like our ways of engaging with it have to change. Like there's now I don't see most of what happens. Yeah. I used to see everything. And, and so I felt really bad at first. I was like, Oh gosh, like people are like making beautiful art of our dogs and I might not see it. And I was like trying to keep up and I was like, Oh, like I, I can't because I'll spend, I won't spend time with the dogs. I'll be like trying to keep up with art about the dogs. And, um, you're more, you know, but I also have to understand, like, it's not for me. Like this stuff isn't all for me. It's for each other. People are doing it for each other. Yeah. Transitioning just a little bit. This is still broadly about the dogs, which is, um, something that I, am embarrassed to call a burning question that I have for you, which okay. is, do you ever get cold? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. People think, people always tell me like, oh, I couldn't be a musher because I get cold or because I don't like being cold. And I'm like, do you think I like being cold? Like nobody likes being cold. Okay. I was confused. I was confused because reading your book, like there's a lot of cold. Nobody likes being cold, (laughs) but I am good at cold and cold is a skill. People think it's something you're born with or you're not. And some people have like Raynaud syndrome where, you know, they have issues of circulation and some mushers, you know, female mushers take Viagra because it improves circulation to your extremities. Fascinating. I haven't tried it. I'd be curious what would happen. I have a little bit of the Raynaud syndrome. So I'm wondering like if that would help with that. I don't know. Talk to your doctor. Don't take medical advice from me. Um, but okay, I won't. But no, cold is a skill. People think it's something you have or you don't have, but it's a very specific set of skills. Like you need to know exactly how to dress, how to layer, how your body works, where you lose heat. You need to know how your metabolism works because different people metabolize differently. Like I know what foods will make me colder and what foods will make me warmer and the amount I can eat and like when you need to go to the bathroom, like all these things you practice and then you get good at it. So, I mean, I will, and it's also just high stakes. I mean, I go mushing, I'll be out in 40 below and I'll be 50 miles from the nearest shelter. And like, if you mess, I mean, when it's that cold, 
things can become a life or death situation within seconds. Like everything can be fine and you, it can be something out of your control. Like let's say there's a moose up ahead or like, you know, overflow on the trail and, and you have to run up ahead and you break a sweat. Like the moment you break a sweat, you're in danger. Um, so that's the other thing people don't realize is that the biggest skill with staying warm when it's cold is not letting yourself get too warm. Because as soon as you start feeling pleasantly warm, you're sweating even if you don't realize it. And then that's when you're gonna get deeply chilled and you're not gonna be able to warm yourself once your base layers are, have moisture in them. So you always have to be like a little bit cold like cool, but like you're in an air-conditioned room. Like I'm a little cool right now. It's like a cool room and I'm wearing a sleeveless dress or whatever. Um, you have to be like just on that edge where you're not going to start getting <laughs> warm and sweating and then being in danger. I'm just laughing because you're wearing a sleeveless dress and I'm wearing three layers. Um. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be shocked to know if you're a regular listener to the show. I'm being sarcastic on all fronts. I am standing in front of the mic today, and I am wearing an item of clothing from my last Stitch Fix box. Uh, they're leggings, and um, they are from, oh, I can't remember the name of the brand. I think Human with a Y-O-O in it, in the human. And they're made in America because I told Stitch Fix that I really wanted to buy made in America clothing. And so my last box had all made in America items. And it was a great box. It was like uh, the woman who put my box together said, uh, you didn't request anything specific this month, so I just wanted to make sure you had tons of comfy clothes. And um, basically it was like leggings and baggy shirts, which is kind of my uniform in the winter. So it's a pretty good mind reading there, person who put my box together. And I also, I've been getting another subscription box for women that shall go unnamed. And I happened, because I just mistimed my request, to get both boxes uh, in the same week this week. The other box was not as good. It just wasn't. It was, like, a little too trendy for me, an old woman. Uh, and a lot of the stuff was made in China, which is fine. It's just I prefer, like I said, to buy Made in America items. And I feel like I've told that to both companies, but only one company really responded to me. So, Stitch Fix, I didn't read any of the things they told me to read. I just told you my awesome experience. I would recommend Stitch Fix even if they weren't a sponsor. But you can you can help me out, help them out by, you know, subscribing to Stitch Fix yourself and using the offer code FRIENDS. Because if you get started today at stitchfix.com slash friends, you get an extra 25% off when you keep everything in that first box. Again, that's an extra 25% off if you keep everything in the first box. Stitchfix.com slash friends. That's again, stitchfix.com slash friends. You brush your teeth every day. You might even floss most of the time. But did you know there is another level of oral care? With ARC, you can remove stains that lie beneath the surface of your smile. ARC is a new way to achieve professional-level teeth whitening at home for just 30 minutes a day. Each ARC treatment includes dentist-approved enamel-safe whitening strips that adhere to your upper and lower teeth, along with ARC Blue Light technology. The Blue Light mouthpiece arcs over your entire smile, delivering targeted blue light energy to help weaken set-in stains below the enamel surface, making your treatment more effective than strips alone. 
Art can help reveal a smile that's 50 times wider than a leading whitening toothpaste, and they offer satisfaction guaranteed. And to help my listeners get those wider, brighter smiles, Arc is offering $15 off your first purchase of a blue light kit when you visit arcsmile.com and use promo code FRIENDS at checkout. Go to arcsmile.com, and that's promo code FRIENDS at checkout for $15 off your blue light whitening kit. arcsmile.com, promo code FRIENDS. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. So I live in Minnesota and I am, I lived most of my life in Texas. I was born in Puerto Rico. Um, this sucks. Like it really does. Like, I mean, I love the Midwest so much and I, you know, I've made my home here by choice, but the 20 degree below days. And I feel even bad, like silly, just saying that, like (laughs) just 20 below. No, that's cold. It's cold. cold. It's cold. Anything below five below. I'm like, okay, it's cold out. That's cold. And that's when mushers will start using the word chili. Like they'll be like, it's (laughs) no, I'm serious. Like you talk to mushers and you're like, oh, how is it? And they're like, uh, they'll either be like, oh, it's nice. Or they'll be like, it's chili. And if you hear a musher say it's chili, it's like 10 below or colder. All right, that's good to know. I yeah. feel less bad. So about that's chilly. Okay, it's chilly. That's chilly. It's, that's it is, legit it's a, chilly. It's a, it's a, it's a, you might feel a bit of a chill. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Twenty below. It's chilly. Okay. So I've been bit of been. So I'm listening to you for like, how can I use this? Um, and so far, the only thing I've gotten is that you had to be a little bit cold, which actually is helpful, but not too cold. Okay, here's what happens because I take I take people mushing. Right. I don't do tours. Too much liability on that. <laughs> we don't want anything to do with tours. Um, but we take our friends mushing. And, and sometimes we do, um, sometimes other people, like we work with a sort of make-a-wish organization and we'll mm-hmm. take kids mushing and their families. And um, people show up, and I, because we also work in media, I feel like I'm, I don't mean to like call you and Sarah out and any other people who work in media in the room, but we take a lot I'll of consider, people. We'll consider in, ourselves exceptions. You are exceptions. Okay. All right. I take a lot of people in media mushing, and by a lot, I mean a few. And <laughs> By media, I don't mean media. By a lot, I mean a few. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Just yeah. don't even listen to anything I'm saying. Right. Um, and people show up, and we're like, do you need warm clothes? And they're like, no, 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 no. I have warm clothes. Just wait. And we're like, okay, great. And they're like, really? Like, I have warm clothes. And they show up, and they're wearing, like, tights under jeans and, like, bean boots and, like, a little puffer from Patagonia and maybe, like, a knit hat without a liner. And then they, like, wrap a really long scarf around themselves a lot. And they're like, no, 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 I'll be warm. And we're like, I wouldn't go to the outhouse in what you're wearing. Like... (laughs) They well, okay, what, like, how cold, is it chilly when they show up like that? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It could be, because it can get chilly. It can be 20 degrees and get cold, or you can fall into a river and then you get cold. Like, you're always dressed for it to get cold, and, like, it's not fun if you're cold. Like, I don't know. People's ideas of what warm weather clothing is is so out of touch. Like, I wear... What cold weather clothing Yeah, is, thank yes. you. I wear, like... 
I saw it, you, you did a post of like all your different layers once. Yeah, and like it, that's what I'm wearing. You're wearing like this with a parka on it to walk to work or something in yeah. Minneapolis. And in the same temperature, I'm wearing like the same stuff people wear to summit Mount Everest. Okay, so then how do you so stay a little bit cold? So you're not wearing enough clothing. So how do, you, how do you stay a little bit cold zippers. if you're wearing 17 layers? Open the zippers. All right. You need more clothing. That's my advice. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel sad. Like, you're just not wearing enough clothes. Well, I've just adapted my life so I just didn't go outside much in January. That's like my, um, which I mail as I'm missing things um, by doing that. And so we have a musher friend in common, and you've been very mm-hmm. generous about saying, like, I should go mushing sometime. I have which to say. you should, and we will dress you. That's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. Oh. We will dress you. We will dress you. Oh, because I admit that it's the thing that there's a big thing that's keeping me from doing it, which is... You don't have to worry. And I don't have to be cold. I'll be a no. little bit cold, but not very cold. No, we All will right. dress you and we will put you in a sleeping bag in the sled <laughs> and we will give you a thermos of hot chocolate. Uh, that sounds lovely. There you okay. go. All right. And you will watch the forest go by while dogs pull you. And um, I'll meet some dogs, which yeah. is the most important part. So to get back to this affirming, positive, wonderful community, that's the community that I see and I associate with dog sledding because I've, I have made a very conscious choice to, to I have a, now have a good Twitter channel on my browser that's only things that make me happy. I guess some people call that a bubble, but um, I'm doing it. And so I look at the ugly dogs community and that's what I think of when I think of dog sledding. And so I had, I was like working on this idea about how, you know, accepting and firming and all of that and how I see a lot of, um, at least like in your, the people that uh, are in your specific dog sledding community that you link to and other people I follow, there's a lot of acceptance, especially of LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm. Am I getting a, a good view of dog sledding, of mushing? You are getting a view of the bubble of mushing that we have created okay. for ourselves. I was, that was my question. So tell me, more about, tell me more about what this bubble exists in. Tell me more about the, the uh, atmosphere surrounding it. Um, I mean, it's great. It's a sport I've been in for 13 years now, since I was 18. Um, but it, it is not cohesive, you know? So you have like, I would say there are more conservative mushers than progressive mushers. That was, that was sort of at the heart <laughs> of my question. I was like, wow, like, wow, mushing looks like a place where if you're different at all, like you will be totally welcome. And then I was like, wait a minute. Like, also, I read your book. <laughs> um, the but book? That's what, I mean, but I also appreciate that. Like, yeah. I am good friends. I have really good friends who are... Politically conservative. Very politically right. conservative. And we are able to have discussions about it. And I don't want to be in a bubble where I'm only spending time with people with the same political beliefs as me. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, sometimes I change their minds. Sometimes they change my minds about things. I'm curious about that specifically, but also... I want to make a distinction between being politically conservative and being affirming or welcoming? Because I think you can be both. Exactly. Because I don't, I think, I don't think political ideas can necessarily keep you from being accepting of others. So, because I was like, so there was a wonderful quote in, in one of the things that you wrote um, about getting sick, uh, mm. where you talked about how life outdoors revolves around tolerable discomfort. Yeah. Uh, 
you get sick with Lyme disease. Yeah, which, I was very sick for about two years. Um, so this show advocates living with discomfort, but in the sort of emotional, psychological sense, as a way mm-hmm. of disabusing yourself of your privilege, mm-hmm. as a way of recognizing that the world is uncomfortable for a lot of other people. That if you're comfortable, then you probably need to look around and, and see what you're not looking at. Yeah. And so I had this idea, I was thinking about, well, is there something about being uncomfortable in the outdoors, about having to live with tolerable discomfort in this physical way that makes pe- maybe people more accepting in a psychological or emotional way? And do you think that's true, even if like your conservative mushroom friends? I think that there is really a sense when you're all out on the trail together. I mean, here's the thing. However different mushers are, we have a tremendous amount in common because they're the only people who know what it's like to like spend your life taking care of 30 dogs and being out with them and like solving problems and just all the stuff that comes up with that. And, um, you know, and also mushing, it it's can pretty be, self-selecting can be vilified also. It, I mean, there's a lot yeah. of misunderstanding that it's a sport where my, where dogs are made to run, um, sort of despite injuries, like run to death. I mean, there's a lot of ideas about that and, um, which are, very, very, very far from the truth. Um, and I think that that's something I really like sharing with people is, you know, I don't have to go out there and be like, we're not killing dogs, yeah. which is like horrible to even say or like think that people think about you. But people just, if they follow our team, they see our dogs from the time they're born till the time they retire. Like you don't have to say anything. They just see actually what's going on, um, which is typical. It's what's typical. I'm in this sport because I love dogs and that's, how most people, but it's sort of a self-selecting yeah. community, but, and you do, yeah, so and you have to rely on each other no matter you what do. your politics are. So there is a sense of being sort of like misunderstood, right? And you're also when you're out on the trail together, you're all on the same team. I mean, you could end up helping each other. Mushers aren't allowed outside help during a race, but they can help each other. Oh, that's an interesting ethic. Mm-hmm. So you have mushers doing a lot for each other out on the trail, and. And so you really do have a kind of camaraderie. Like you're out there and you have this weird experience and these are other people who understand it. And you can be there for each other when no one else can. So this gets back to the idea of changing people's minds. Because another thing that we talk about a lot on this show is how if you are struggling with people in your life who you are at loggerheads with about an idea or about politics or about choices that you've made in a kind of out, outside world way, mm-hmm. um, the solution, should you want to have one, sometimes that's not what people want, um, but a way to connect is to do something together that has nothing to do with politics. I actually mm-hmm. almost always recommend walking dogs actually, oh, that's ironically. Great. Yeah. yeah. Um, like going to the animal shelter and just if like, if you're fighting with your, you know, Trump supporting uncle, go walk some dogs together, like mm-hmm. give yourself something to do. That's like doing good in the world and not anything to do with what you disagree about. So, but, but so for me, when I play out like doing good in the world with someone rather than arguing about politics, um, one of the things that there are a couple things that happen. One is that sometimes the politics becomes less important. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, but it's a weird, like you have to suspend some desire because if the politics becomes less important, that's actually the point at which you might be able to hear each other. Yeah. 
So I'm curious if that's kind of what you think happens with these people that you maybe disagree with politically, but you have this incredible passion in common with. I mean, and you can't dismiss each other. Yeah. You can't, you can't be like, oh, that person isn't smart or something like whatever people use to dismiss people. If you knew what I knew. Because you're out there and you're, you're really solving problems. I mean, meshing is about solving problems more than anything else, at least to me. And you know, the last thing you're thinking about is someone's politics when you're out there. Um, You know, I do have mixed feelings about this. I think that like if someone's politics are hateful, they shouldn't be let off the hook. Uh, But it's true that you don't actually know um, and you're all working on something very close. And you are in life or death situations. Like you're not going to stop and ask someone how they voted if like you see them by the trail and they need help. No, no. It's the last thing on your mind. Right. So, but that's an important, I know that's also not when you're going to talk about politics, but, Mm -hmm. um, that would be very strange. But, um, but I imagine knowing that you can always depend on people makes it easier to disagree with each other. I mean, it reminds me of, this is my friend who's not a, uh, He's not a dog sledder. He's actually a taxidermist. Of course. Um, who, who we met because... Um, this, this is gross. But he, he saves all the meat for our dogs. So our dogs eat like local wild meat in this way. It's a very hippie thing. Yeah. Um, local wild that organic gross. meat that, that sounds... would be discarded. But um, yeah. our, you know, we became good friends with the taxidermist. It's only gross if you're going to like actually bring it up on stage, which so that's fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If I brought dogs here, there would be... <laughs> Um, so, so that's a lot of our dog food and they love it. They're very healthy on it. So, and so I, the night of the last election, I got lost in the woods or I got stuck in the woods. I forget if I was lost. Um, and I thought I was going to miss the polls. The polls closed at eight and it was dark and I was stuck in the woods and Q was actually driving people to the polls by dog sled. So he had other places to be. And, um, my friend, the taxidermist who it's probably safe to say voted for Trump, um, came out into the woods at night with a blanket, with a thermos full of hot chocolate and, or peppermint tea or something, um, found me in the woods, wrapped me in a blanket, because I was cold. I was also, um, it, it was well, my Lyme disease was bad, so I, I couldn't physically do as much as I would have liked to do. And, um, picked me up and rushed me through the woods in his truck to the pole to cancel out his vote. Did everything he could to make sure I was safe, you know, spend probably two hours finding me, making sure I was safe, and racing me to the polls by like 7.55 so I could cancel out his vote. That's, I, so how do we translate, so how do we bottle that? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I, I, I do think it has to do with community. I mean, obviously it has to do with community and it has to do with acceptance of each other no matter what you believe. Um, this has actually come up a lot on the show recently. I always related back to my recovery. That's the central fact of my life. So it's e- easy for me to re- relate things back to it. Um, sometimes what, one of the things I say about being in 12 step programs is you don't have to like each other, but you have to love each other Mm. and you don't have to want to hang out with someone, but you have to be okay with the idea that if they call you because they're craving a drink or a drug, like you're going to answer the phone and you're going to do whatever that person needs to get help. 
sounds a lot like mushing in that sense. That's and what, rural life. Yeah, I mean, we're in a town of five hundred. It helps if you like each other, like all that. Yeah. I mean, that's great if you like each other, but definitely that's not as important. You know, it's important that you know that you have this bond that will be there. In a way, it's about a it's about a kind of grace. Mm-hmm. Like it'll be there no matter who, no matter what you do. Like you could be a kind of an asshole. And that person may not like helping you, but that doesn't matter. Your essential worth as a person is what matters. All right, so to return this idea of acceptance and grace. Mm-hmm. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, uh, that's also come up recently in the context of climate change, believe mm-hmm. it or not. Um, because I think that there's something about the hugeness of this existential problem facing us that it's hard to even think about if you aren't in a place where you feel like you're going to be accepted and loved no matter what your choices are. And you don't talk about climate change a ton in your book. Mm -hmm. I don't see a ton of it in your Twitter feed, but I mean, it has to be something that you think about a fair amount. Am I wrong? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... um it's part of your life. I mean, it is. And I, my, um, you know, I, I st- at school, I studied environmental law. Like <laughs> it's not a stretch. I, you know, I live in the Arctic. It's something I think about a lot. Right. But you actually see it and like, it's part yeah, of your, yes. like your, th- it it's not just my like, sport. Oh, I think like, yes, I'm, I, climate change is bad and I'm, I'm going to look at the voting, you know, of the people that I support. And that's, you know, it's not, it's not, theoretical that's I guess I guess that's sort of where I'm coming from I think for a lot of people it feels somewhat theoretical even if we're in the middle of a warmer winter than we should have even if we have more flies than we should have because we had a warmer summer than we should have you know there are ways that we could individually talk about this is I'm sure a very well educated audience and that we could talk about the specific ways that climate change is showing up in our our very non-outdoorsy necessarily lives Mm -hmm. but for you it's like I mean, like, so our mutual friend Maria was telling me that the season up in, you know, northern Minnesota was, like, incredibly, even though it got cold. Like yeah, it, it, was it got sh- very cold. It was short mm-hmm. because of climate change. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if it's facing, I guess my question is, if it's facing you all the time, like, it, how is it not existentially dispiriting? It is. Oh, it's, okay. It absolutely is. I mean, and it's terrifying. It's, a, you know, it, you learn about it. I mean, it, the more you learn, the more terrified you are, so you can barely get through your days. Uh, that's how I feel. Well, I that's, where, that's like actually but sort of bringing it back actually, to community. You cannot and, despair when you have okay. sled dogs because you are responsible for their well-being. And that is another thing that you learn out on the trail. When you're out with them and things get tough, they are reflecting your mood. So no matter how, you know, you can get attacked by a moose and fall into a river and, you know, lose the trail and whatever happens, you have to be positive for your dogs because you can have a beautiful day and just be running through the sunshine and if you are negative, your dogs will feel bad. And you can have a terrible day, and if you are positive, they will feel good. And that's how you take care of them. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a certain, and just in, on a practical level, 
I mean, maybe parenting is like this. I'm, I don't have children, so I don't know. But every day you have to go, you have to take care of the dogs and they have needs. And it's year round, like it's a winter sport. But guess what? You have dogs all year and they get bored in the summer and you need to make sure that like they're stimulated and they're having fun and, you know, they are a good temperature, you know, you don't just park them in the garage. And, um, and so you can't, you don't have the luxury of despair. Do you also try to make changes in your life according to things that you believe about climate change? I do. I try. I mean, the irony is mushing is probably is not great for climate change because you spend a lot of time driving. Um, which is something we talk about and think about. It's also people are responding within the sport by changing the dogs. The dogs are becoming different than they used to be. They're becoming dogs who are better adapted to warm temperatures. That, and that sort of strikes me as kind of sad, but it's not. It's not sad. It's just a thing. Well, it is sad because it's okay. about climate change. <laughs> okay. um, but it's not sad it's, for the dogs. No, it's not yeah. sad for the dogs. They're actually more comfortable. And yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of um, dryland mushing that's growing. And dryland mushing... That, I can say, it just sounds kind of sad. Like, I mean, oh, it's, I mean, I mean it's, it's great, but yeah. like, that's an adaptation that shouldn't have to happen. <laughs> well, dryland mushing, we always... There's always dryland mushing because that's how we get by in the summer. You know, they pull wheels. I, not when it's hot. It has to be below 50 degrees. But like, you know, I'll go back home tonight and probably take some dogs out on wheels if okay. it's cold enough. All right. And it's not sad. I was wrong. <laughs> but it's dangerous. I don't like it because I feel like it's way more dangerous than sledding on snow for the human because if your cart wipes out, it's you're going to get way more hurt land. than if your yeah. sled wipes out. Right. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. We all want to do the right thing to keep our bodies healthy in the long run. But even if we try really hard to eat kale salads and drink green smoothies, we're still not likely to get all of the essential nutrients we need on a daily basis. Enter Ritual, the obsessively researched vitamin for women. Ritual's essentials have the nutrients most of us don't get enough from, from food, all in their clean, absorbable forms, no shady additives or ingredients that can do more harm than good. It's just two easy-to-take capsules, and they provide nine nutrients that you need to support a strong foundation for your health. I received a piece of reader mail that was an unsolicited endorsement of Ritual because Ritual apparently has the form of folic acid that is difficult for people with major depression to metabolize. This person said she usually pays extra money to have this form of folic acid um, shipped to her from, from some other pharmacy, but now she just gets Ritual. You should consult with a doctor about anything you take for a medical condition, but this is really cool. It doesn't really surprise me because Ritual, like I said, is obsessively researched and it has the things you can't find necessarily in what you're eating. From D3 to omega-3, Ritual's Essentials for Women helps fill the gaps in a woman's diet. Their no-nausea capsule design is gentle on an empty stomach, and I think everyone knows how much I love the mint tab in the bottle. In fact, I took a trip recently and I stole the mint tab out of the ritual bottle to put in my little like mini pill thing because I just wanted my pills to smell as good as ritual does. For obsessive label readers, all of ritual's vegan-friendly, sugar-free, gluten-free, and allergy-free ingredients are out there for the whole world to see. 
ritual is delivered. It's easy to snooze the subscription should you want to. It's only a dollar a day to have all the essential nutrients your body needs delivered every month. No strings attached. Better health doesn't happen overnight. And right now, Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off their first three months. Please visit ritual.com slash friends to start your ritual today. That's 10% off your first three months at ritual.com slash friends. If you want a career in public service, and I kind of assume if you are listening to Crooked Media podcasts, this thought has crossed your mind at least once. I know that you're interested in civic vigilance, not because it's comfortable or easy, but because you feel called. The Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin offers graduate degrees in domestic and global policy. They also have a unique combination of spirit, purpose, and courage that sets them apart. If you are ready to harness your passions and build the future, find out more at lbjschool.com. Dot info slash friends. Again, that's lbjschool.info slash friends, or find the LBJ School on social media at the LBJ School. So this is an ad, but it is also a full-throated endorsement for a new podcast out from Limonada Media called Last Day. It is from Stephanie Whittles-Wax, uh, who's the sister of Harris Whittles, who you may have heard of, a comedian and writer. Um, And, well, you'll find out a lot more about him when you listen to the first episode of the show. The show is called Last Day, and it is about epidemics. It is about the epidemics we hear about constantly that are hard to comprehend and getting worse every day. Stephanie hosts the show with humanity and wit and a bit of profanity, which I definitely endorse. And she's on a genuine quest for progress. Season one launched just last week, and it is about the opioid crisis, which is now killing more people in America than car accidents. Last Day zooms in on a person's last day of life to try and figure out how they got there, then zooms out to help us all understand the bigger social picture and what can be done about this crisis we're all experiencing. The storytelling is great, and like I said, Stephanie, who lost her brother Harris, to an overdose in 2015, is able to bring all of her first-person experience to the table. It's interesting, accessible, it makes you want to listen whether or not you've been affected directly by the opioid crisis or not. As some of you know, I have, and I've kind of talked to her extensively about this in an upcoming episode of this show. You'll hear from family members and friends, including Sarah Silverman and Aziz Ansari in The Harris Whittle Show, authors, experts, policymakers, harm reductionists, first responders. It is gripping, it is important, it is funny, and it is surprisingly hopeful. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Blair, could you pretend to be Norwegian for a second for me? I understand you have an alternate ego. Yeah, that can I do. <laughs> What's her name? Oh gosh, I actually forgot about this. Oh, I I totally I haven't thought about this in years. I forgot it was in the book, right? Oh yeah, I had a Norwegian alter ego because I really used to really like I grew up in Norway partially, and I used to really like try to pretend not to be American, and um, and so my friends gave me a Norwegian name, and it was like a very awkward, old-fashioned Norwegian name, but it was Molfri, right? Molfred. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I haven't thought about that in years. (laughs) 
Um, and this, this is my attempt at a very, very smooth segue to talk more about like your background and your memoir. Um, there's a lot of remarkable things in it, a lot of things about crossing boundaries of different kinds and stuff that's uncomfortable to read about. But the thing that stuck with me from a lot of the book was this idea that you found a home in the North, that it was just the North called to you from like the age of, I'm going to say, not even younger than 12? Was it yeah, like, certainly. Yeah. Certainly from the time I was very small. Yeah. That you just, even though you're from California, you just had this like sense of that is my place. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember reading like, I really identified with like polar explorers who were like, I like these t incredibly cheesy things. Like I'm drawn by the call of the ice, or, you know, whatever this is. Just, um, but I'd be like, yeah, yeah, me, that's how I am. And I just, you know, it's sort of like, you know, it's like a, it's not really like a sexual orientation, but it's oh like my a God, geographic orientation. I was actually going to ask you about that. Like you're just sort of like, it's where you feel right. I, that's so strange. I'm actually really glad you brought that up because part of me was going to, I wanted to interrogate that some because, so I'm an only child of an itinerant academic as well. Oh, great. Um, but I've never felt that about any place. Like I've never had this like sense of like, oh, and that's where I belong. Now it's another interesting way to live but it's just so different. And I was like trying to like, I wanna ask her how that feels. I wanna ask her like, how do you get there? And I wanna ask her why that is. But then as you were just now talking about it and talking about the cheesiness and I saw the expression in your face, I was like, oh my God, that would be like asking someone why they're straight or why they're gay. <laughs> there's no, cause it's just. Yeah, I don't know, I just like it. <laughs> that's also that's a good answer about sexuality like too places. right <laughs> I just I like them I just like it yeah, yeah. I mean and I've spent time in warm places um I mean well okay. that's maybe, then maybe it's not like sexuality completely so no like I did like last summer I did um the show Naked and Afraid right. in South Africa which was like not that different from the north because I felt like I was like oh like this is a landscape where everything revolves around a single resource which is water and I'm used to a landscape where everything revolves around sunlight and warmth and it's not actually that different you're always oriented towards a scarce resource um, but I did not like it the way I like cold <laughs> places <laughs> so that actually the idea that this calling to a certain place or a certain kind of environment could be at all like one's orientation to other things, especially since you brought it up, sexuality, mm -hmm. is a, is a segue I couldn't have invented, but works really well to this other thing I was thinking about your book, which is, though it's called Welcome to the Goddamn Ice Cube, and a lot of it is about being cold. Like literally there's a lot in the book about different ways that you get cold. Mm -hmm. physically cold. It's actually a book about desire. And being afraid of desire. Yeah. Because, yeah, absolutely. I mean, another thing that's in the book people may not know is that uh, when I started going to these places, cold places, I was um, subjected to some sexual violence. They're very masculine-dominated places and sort of masculine landscapes. Mm -hmm. um, and... 
I found myself sort of drawn to them and terrified of them at the same time for that and, and terrified of desire. Um, and yet and, yearning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yearning just, for maybe not, not necessarily the sexual relationship, but you had this deep yearning. Yeah. How do I balance this? Like, do I need to avoid the thing I want because I'm scared of what goes along with it? I mean, I, which doesn't have to. You don't have to, like, be a victim of sexual violence just because you're in northern places. That's not... Just because I have that messed up idea doesn't mean you have to have that messed up idea. <laughs> well, I don't... Uh, I mean, it has nothing to do with the northern... It became about northern places for you. Yes, and it no longer is, but it certainly was for a while in my life. Because it, it happened a few times. And there's like mm-hmm. a theme in the book that I have to say, just speaking for me, and I haven't interrogated this thought that I'm about to express, and I'm worried it's going to be offensive in some way, but I'm still going to say Go it. Go for it. God, men suck. Like, they are just the worst. But they're and also great. Yeah, but there's so much in your book, like, yes, the men, some men behave well, but... And maybe this is like a place where I just feel like I maybe I'm identifying with your sense of being pushed and pulled, mm-hmm. which is, on the one hand, it seems like a, it's a joke, right? To say men are easy to understand. They only want, want, want one thing, straight men. But on the other hand, like, they're so confusing. Like, I just the way that they treat you, it seems like you're navigating so much. But there was a point at which I was choosing to do that. Right. I think. I mean, I the book is about. It's like they the said. The book out is about o- men. Right. Yes. The and it's about, about obstacles. I mean, one review I read was like, "This doesn't pass the Bechdel test." No. No, it doesn't. And uh-huh. I was like, "Oh, like first I was like, oh no, am I like no? What does actually, that mean? I think but there's actually one. My conver- life didn't pass the Bechdel test for several years. There's one conversation with the woman who tucks her jeans into her socks. Um, that's, that's a detail I remember where you talk about something else besides men, I think. I remember oh, actually. Oh, wow, it yeah. passes the Bechdel right. test. Okay, yeah. that's good. Um, yeah. It's late in the book, But though. barely passing yeah. the test doesn't really mean much. I mean, it's still... No. Um, it wouldn't be in the trailer. The it's like you made that. a trailer no. of this. That definitely wouldn't be in the trailer. I wouldn't let someone else off the hook for that. But it's about, it's about men, and it's about desire, and it's about... And I guess what I mean, like, men are so fucking mysterious. Like, it, it, it isn't about what they want. no. It's easy to know what they want. Again, I'll say straight men. Not all men. Actually. Not all men. I, I, but it, the men in your book, I guess, again, I identify, I feel like I've seen this. It's the obstacles they put up and the feeling of needing to pass. See, what's interesting in the book, and then also, you know, like... Like I'm being tested. Like I'm constantly being tested. Like you actually refer to some of the things like when they're flirting with you and not flirting with you as games. Well, that was the thing. I ended up being terrified of the North because I was terrified of men. And I went back to a community that was almost all men. And that was part of getting over what had happened to me, was being like, okay, like these men can be flirtatious. And they were all like older men. Like I was like 22 or something. And like most of them were like 60. (laughs) And, um, but I never felt threatened. So what I was doing was grappling with this interaction without actually putting myself in danger. And so it is uncomfortable. It was very uncomfortable, but I was figuring out my own boundaries, what I was okay with, what I wasn't, you know, where that safety line was. And it was actually a very important stage for me to go through. 
I believe. And it is interesting because I now have spent the past three winters basically in Alaska. Um, and I had a very hard time there when I was 18 um, where I ended up staying in an abusive relationship because I felt that that relationship protected me from the misogyny outside that relationship. And I went back recently and I'm with my husband and I was like, oh, like this is different. Like it is easier for me to be here in this place because I have, I am attached to a man. I am protected by being attached to a man, which is not, I mean, which is terrible. But I was like, oh, like I had to do this when I was 18 without this resource. And were you able to maybe be a little more forgiving of your younger self for that? Is that? Yeah, absolutely. I was like, oh my God, like I used to think it was in my head, but it wasn't. No, it's real. Like, yeah, yeah, no, the patriarchy still exists. It does still exist. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, and my husband is queer, Yeah, you know, which means that he's treated differently for that reason. Um, but it's still like is the basic fact of like you're walking down the street with someone with a beard and if you're walking down to someone who presents as male, yeah, then you're going to be treated differently if you walk down the street with someone who isn't presented as male. Yeah, no question. Yeah. So one of the other things that resonated with me in your book, I, I referred to how some of the interactions with men feel like te- you describe them as tests or mm-hmm. games. Um. You are another, like I mentioned, you're an only child of some smarty pants parents, <laughs> an overachiever, I think it's safe to say, in Probably. many ways, Ms. Iditarod contestant. Um, <laughs> contestant. Contestant participant? A, a, a racer? I don't racer? Know. Yeah. I don't know. That just know. made me think of a beauty pageant. Yeah, it is, like though, if, right? Is yeah. the Sportsmanship Award and the Iditarod Miss Congeniality? Is, wow, that would be kind of awesome, actually. Yeah, they should get a sash. Okay. Yeah, they should do the, the bib, or they should do bibs in um, beauty pageants rather than sashes. Oh, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. Um, so there is a place where I felt very seen in your book. So you were talking to the principal of the folk school you attended, and he says, you liked yourself because you were good at things but your challenge was to like yourself for just being because one day you were going to fail at something big. And if you'd based your self-worth on accomplishments, you were going to be shattered. You were brave, but you didn't trust your own instincts. It's interesting because I didn't think much about that line when I put it in there. I went back and I interviewed him and he's wonderful. Jens Rindahl, um, really a great, teacher and and he welcomed you to school wearing binder clips on his nipples he did do that yeah Yeah, that was weird that was weird (laughs) but he is a very insightful kind compassionate man and you know he's very he has very interesting theories about pedagogy he's very good um that is one of the lines in the book that people have responded to the most and it's interesting you don't know what people will respond to but that seems to resonate with a lot of people it resonates with me because I feel like it's something that I still struggle with. Um, and I don't know, I've recently tried to come to terms with the fact that maybe it's just an ongoing challenge. Maybe you don't get to the other side of something like that. Which made me wonder, do you think you're on the other side of that? I think that I, when I was growing up, my dad would come into the room wherever I was and say, are you being productive? Oh, God. 
And <laughs> whatever I was doing, there were these lists of like dad approved things that were productive and, and things that were not productive according to my dad. So if you want to raise an overachiever, here's one hint. Are you being productive? So like, I like to read like cartoons like Garfield, like that was not productive, but reading books, if they were my grade level or above was productive. Like, you know, so I sort of figured out. No, I'm familiar like, with this kind of parental behavior. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So like, you know, there was art and exercise and rating, like all these things were productive and, um, and some things weren't productive that I like to do. And, but the one thing that was productive, that was always like my trump card was that thinking was productive. So if I heard him coming what, and I was reading a comic book or I don't know, like I, whatever I was doing, I feel like that was the main unproductive thing I did. I could hide it and just be sitting in a chair when he walked into the room. And he would say, what are you doing? And I would say, I'm thinking, Dad. And he would go, oh, that's very productive. Okay. Um, okay. And then I'd hear, he'd be like, do you need anything? Do you need, like, water or a snack? Like, um, Are you overexerting yourself? Then like? I'd hear him, like, leave, and he'd be like, don't, to my mom, he'd be like, don't bother her. She's thinking. And so... <laughs> And so I did. I think I grew up with a bit of a complex about productivity where like, and I've actually like outgrown it a lot where I now really love being unproductive for large chunks of time. My husband would disagree. He would be like, no, you still have a complex and those large chunks of time are 20 minutes. Uh, but to me, I feel like I've come a long way. And being sick also did that a lot, getting really sick because you would hate yourself if... Because the productive thing is to do nothing. It's to rest. It's what you need. So the book is about desire and about yearning and coming to terms with that. What do you yearn for today? I haven't seen my dogs in a few days because I was on the road and Sarah was taking care of them. And I, so it's been like, it's been too long. Like what have they done for the past two days? I don't know. <laughs> Is it making you homesick to see pictures? I can't see. Oh. If I, I would just watch the show if I started watching it. Who's that? That's Flame and Jenga. Oh, they're the, they're the stars. They're the stars of your Twitter feed. They are stars. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're sisters. Jenga, the brown one is boss bitch. She pushes everyone around and Flame is very clingy. And, um, I do bring her to events, the yellow dog, because she, she's very clingy. People ask, how come I spend, she's like sort of my pet. Um, <laughs> Sorry, for the, the, the listening audience, an especially cute picture came up, so. <laughs> the, the answer um, to why she spends the most time with me is because she's very codependent, and I like that in a dog. I just want a dog who thinks I'm the best thing in the world and follows me around. It's really good for my ego, and, and I love her very much, and she loves me very much, and so she would come to this show with me if, if I brought a dog. Maybe that's a good place to end the conversation. That's just how people should, be, should get better in life. Like, they just need a codependent dog. You just, I'm really a fan. I'm really a fan of the clingy dog. And people ask me, like, when I've brought dogs to events... People are like, how did you like get this dog to be such a good dog? Like, there, I wish my dog could be that good. And I'm like, I have 26 to choose from. <laughs> I picked the one that was going to be best behaved. <laughs> like, I got to, I got to pick the one that was going to not pee on people. Like, 
This is also good advice about children, I assume. Um, Just have enough that you can, there's one you can bring to social gatherings. Or maybe, maybe to bring it back to the ugly dogs, that's a good thing about community. You, you pick the person who's not going to, no, um, that doesn't, no, that doesn't no, work. That no. doesn't work. Good try. Thank you. Uh, and thank you in general, Blair. We've reached the end of our time, but I am so grateful that you could make it here. And I'm going to definitely take you up on your promise to give me a sled ride someday. Good. We will dress you. You don't have to worry about that at so, all. So nice. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you, Anna. And that is it for the show. I will be candid with you because I'm always candid, which is that I don't, I don't really like doing live shows that much. Um, they make me a lot more nervous than talking to you here in the intimacy of the studio. But Blair was fantastic. And I hope you enjoyed listening to her as much as I did. And with that, I want to encourage you to stay warm and to take care of yourselves. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. 